Good morning, everyone. It has, it has already been quite a full morning. I'd uh, just like to also extend my thanks to Ron and his team for leading us so well this morning. I never would have imagined when I was sitting where some of these students are, getting to know Ron 15 years ago or so, that uh, there'd come a day when he would ask me to write a pastoral reference for his portfolio. Um, one of the things I did mention, as, as I was certainly willing to do that for him, was the fact that it never seems to matter how, how much is going on on Saturday night when there's performances and all that stuff and everyone's busy. Ron doesn't fail to turn up in church on Sunday morning, often with a group of his students, setting the example for them uh, that, that participation in the life of your local church really matters. So I thank you for that, Ron. Thank you for your, your excellent leadership today. So we're continuing on with our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. We're looking at patience today, uh, everyone's favorite topic, I'm sure. Um, The children certainly seemed enthused about it. Are we there yet? Right. I'm sure you've all seen uh, what are often called life hack articles or videos, you know, where somebody who's supposed to be an expert kind of shows you or tells you some unconventional little way to do a thing that's supposed to save you time. Maybe it's using some everyday household materials to accomplish something that you thought you needed to buy a special product or get a special tool in order to do. Uh, What have we got up there? Oh yeah, that actually kind of works, right? I've tried that. I keep my things organized that way. It's not a bad idea. Everybody's, you know, got some of those. You can go to Staples and buy them for a couple dollars. The problem is there's a lot of these so-called life hacks that don't actually work, right? Where it's going to actually take you more time to do the thing than it would take just to do it the conventional way. Or if you don't have the so-called common household items just laying around, you're going to have to go out and buy those for more than it would cost just to do it the normal way. I mean, there are some good ones, right? You find a way that's an easier way to cut an onion or a watermelon. You go, oh yeah, that's way simpler, But for every one of those, there's some suggestion that probably has to do with making you feel more efficient or more organized than actually making you more effective and efficient and organized. And it certainly doesn't always accomplish anything of lasting value. But the fact that there are so many things, these little listicle things that they have on how to be more efficient and more productive and save a few seconds, it tells me something about our culture. It tells me that we definitely desperately and definitely want shortcuts, and we desperately want to believe that they work. It might be in small things like folding the laundry. It might be in big things like getting in shape or learning French. You've seen the things, right? You know, blast the fat away on your abs with this one weird trick. Some of you get tagged in Facebook things for that. Or, you know, learn any language fluently in 90 days. I'm like, there's no way to do that. The only way to be fluent is to move where they speak the language and, and learn it. That's what you do. Nothing works that way. At least nothing of value and nothing worth doing well. Here's the thing. Even if it did, we wouldn't feel satisfied. If you cheat your way into some skill, often you feel like you cheated. And we've all heard about people that win the lottery and that it doesn't actually make them happy because they didn't earn it. Satisfaction in your accomplishments is usually proportional 
to patiently showing up day after day and putting in your time and doing the work, making slow and incremental progress. It's like that across so many areas of our lives, and it's like that in our spiritual lives too. You can say a lot about Eugene Peterson, and some of it might be controversial, but one of the things I love that Eugene Peterson said, I think he hit a real bullseye when he coined the phrase, a long obedience in the same direction, to talk about the Christian life. So that's what it is. Day after day, you put one foot in front of the other. You don't always, it's not always smooth sailing. It's not always nothing but victories. But as long as you stay focused in the same direction, keep obeying Jesus, you will get where you're going. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That's really what patience is. Staying the course, putting in the time, not wavering. So I'd invite you to stand as we typically do, and we'll go back to James. Another passage in that book has a lot to say about patience. James 1, 2 to 8. Just a small little section here. James 1, 2 to 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is God's word. Now, some of you may have had different translations. Some of you may have had a translation that said the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, patience, patient endurance. It's all kind of that idea. In this little section, we kind of have two even smaller sections, or so it would seem. One on the testing of your faith producing patience, and then another one on asking wisdom from God and receiving it. As I've studied this passage more closely, it seems to me, though, that this isn't actually two separate issues. This is one issue that just continues on into the other. Patient endurance and acquiring wisdom go hand in hand most of the time. If we read these as two separate sections, you can kind of get the idea that, okay, the testing of your faith produces patience and endurance, and that's going to take a long time. But if you want wisdom, just ask God, and he'll just give that to you in, in one fell swoop. Not exactly sure that's how it works, but let's, let's take some things apart uh, before we put them back together again. So first off, the Greek word James uses here for patience, or if you have endurance or steadfastness, is a different word than Paul uses in Galatians chapter 5. Now there's some somewhat common distinction that scholars have made is that Paul's word may have more to do with patience in relationships. What James is talking about here maybe has to do with, more with circumstances, However, scholars do sometimes make a lot of subtle differences between words. If you were here at our combined service in the landing when Dr. Wes Olmsted was, was speaking to us, he talked about that very thing of how sometimes words are used as near synonyms and then scholars try to make a big deal out of, out of differences. In the other passage that Ron read uh, earlier in the service, uh, James does use both of the terms and he uses them in close proximity, kind of using them both to talk about one main idea, right? Patience with people and patience in your circumstances, it all involves the same thing of sticking the course, 
of not giving up, not wavering. So I've heard, I'm sure we've all heard the discussion about joy versus happiness or pleasure and how they're not the same. And we had a sermon not that long ago on joy, so I'm not going to belabor that point. If you were here, you'll have heard a little bit about that. But I do want to take a look at another term in this passage, and it doesn't always get as much uh, discussion from the commentators uh, because, you know, we want to talk about joy and we want to talk about happiness and how those are different. It's the word for count or consider. In a sort of abstract sense, this word is used in scenarios such as these, right? Um, Consider, count, regard, etc. But in a more concrete sense, the word can refer to sort of a, a decision by a ruler or by a magistrate to, to make a pronouncement about something. And I think that's kind of applicable here. At least it helps us to understand maybe what this is, is getting at. That is, when difficult circumstances come, your natural inclination, in particular your emotions, are going to be directing you in one specific direction. Right? I, I don't like this. This is hard. This is scary. I want to just get out of this situation as quickly as I can. I'm a victim. I hate this. I'm just going to quit. However, you have to, if you want to be obedient, you kind of have to rule over those natural inclinations and where they're going to take you. You have to sort of make this settled decision and, and decide to take a different view of things, a different perspective. That is not to say that you will feel joyful in an emotional sense. But remember from our sermon on joy, we did look at the reality that joy is more about what God is doing in our circumstances uh, than certainly what we feel about what God is doing in our circumstances. And this term for consider or count or regard is the same term that St. Paul uses in Philippians 3 when he came to discover that all his advancements in Judaism didn't amount to anything in light of Christ. And he says he considered them rubbish or garbage in light of knowing Christ, right? And we see the same thing here. It's got, he would be naturally inclined to think that, you know, keeping the law and being from this religious pedigree and advancing and Pharisaic Judaism would really count for something. And that would be how you'd naturally feel about that. But he says, no, I, I made a decision to put that aside and consider it as worthless in light of what Christ has done for me. And, and that's a big decision to make, to turn your back on all those things that your culture, and in his case, his religion, was telling him was really important. So consider it joy when you face these trials. Why? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith produces patience, produces endurance. One commentator I read indicated that joy in the face of these sort of trials comes not in looking at them, because that might well produce sorrow and sadness and pain if you look directly at the trials. But if you look through the trials to what God is doing, then you see the good that might come in them. So James begins a progression here. Trials which test your faith produce steadfastness or patience, and that points beyond the trials to perfection. The steadfastness of produces perfection eventually. And in order to understand that, we need to look just beyond our text today 
to verse 12, where James circles back around this same theme. James has this little habit of kind of leapfrogging ahead and then picking up and then moving ahead again. So in verse 12 of this same chapter, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The point of focus isn't the trials or tests. The point of focus isn't even the patient endurance that they will help to grow in you, important though that is. The point of focus, the ultimate goal, is the crown of life from the Lord. Remember when we spent all those weeks in the first chapters of the book of Revelation and the letters to the seven churches. Every time, what was it? To the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, I'm going to give, often it was the crown of life or some other comparable reward in God's eternal kingdom. God will give the crown of life to those who conquer. And it's the same thing here. Neither the trials and struggles nor even the growth in virtue and righteousness are the main things. They aren't and it's in themselves. They are means by which the Lord transforms us more and more into the likeness of Jesus and makes us suitable citizens of his heavenly kingdom and the crown of life that awaits us. And that's really been the focus of our series here on the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit isn't about just kind of advancing in your personal holiness, like leveling up in a video game, where you can kind of judge your progress against this person over here or that person over there and be like, well, I've, I'm getting 9 out of 10 on this particular fruit of the Spirit. Aren't I a holy and righteous person? No, they're not status markers. They're means by which we can build up our community, right? The fruit of the Spirit are interpersonal, communal virtues that the Lord bestows on us to build up his kingdom, to build up the body of Christ, and encourage one another on as we move toward his kingdom and the crown of life that awaits us. If you lack wisdom, though, I think we so frequently see the second part of this little passage as its own section. This whole testing of our faith, producing endurance thing, like, I don't know about that. I don't really like that so well because it's going to be hard. It's going to take a long time. I'm going to have to wait for it, like Andrew was talking about with the kids. I don't want to wait. I just, I just want it now. And so we're tempted, I think, to see this next little section about asking the Lord for wisdom as sort of a, okay, well, if I'm not really into this whole enduring thing, maybe I'll just ask the Lord for wisdom, and if I have enough faith, he'll just... He'll just give it to me. Kind of a one-shot deal, one and done. Now I'm wise. I'm not so sure we've started a new section. And I'm even less sure that that's actually how wisdom works. Should you ask God for wisdom? Yes. Nod your heads up and down. Know you're alive there. Yes, you should. Will he give it? Yes. The Bible promises that he will. Does it just come magically from a download on high that you just download into your brain or your soul? No, probably not. Will it come magically from on high if you just have enough faith, right? If you just kind of get to a state of a certain amount of intensity and faith and lack of doubt, it's like, okay, I am, this is the most faithful I've ever felt today, so I'm going to ask the Lord for wisdom because I'm not doubting, and then he's got to give it to me. No, I don't think so. It's easy to get hung up on that if you just ask in faith without any doubt and misunderstand. And I think we've probably been a bit conditioned to it by a few too many kind of 
prosperity preachers or prosperity-esque preachers that like to talk a lot about if you just have enough faith, then the Lord will answer any prayer. If you have enough faith, blah, 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 power of positive thinking, whatever. Here's the thing. We like, I think, to imagine that the getting of wisdom is just this one-and-done deal, where if we just get our motives pure enough, our faith intense enough, then God is more or less compelled to just give us wisdom as as a one-time package deal and we're good. I think for the majority of us, that's not going to be how learning wisdom works. We just, we don't ask once and then get once and then we're done and we're as wise as we're ever going to be. For most of us, I think it's going to be repeated asking in faith, repeated receiving in faith, repeated asking for more wisdom when we need it, growing in that wisdom and grace, continually growing. So where does the issue with doubt come in? Because it does play a clear part in this passage. It does say you have to ask without doubting. And that if you are doubting, you're not going to receive anything from the Lord because you're unsteady and you're just tossed around and blown by the wind. I don't think it has primarily to do, or at least only to do, with a lack of intensity and faith in the initial ask of the Lord. Doubt here, I don't think, is so much about a one-time emotional or rational state prior to asking God for wisdom. Instead, I think it's about a lack of commitment to the process of God's answer to that prayer. All right, it talks about this person being blown and tossed by the wind, unstable, unsteady. Remember at the beginning we looked at what James said, that you have to count it all joy. You've got to make this settled, committed decision to see what God is doing in your life, even through trials, as worth it. As something that will eventually bring you joy. And that may be eventually a long time away in God's eternal kingdom. But if we can make that settled decision to stick with it, to stick with what God is doing, to stick with him in the times of trial, then we will go through that and find joy on the other side. Doubt is sort of the opposite of that settled decision to commit to what, is God, what God is doing, stick with it, and, and look for the joy that comes through it. Doubting, as even James described, it's wavering. It's going back and forth between two opinions. It's not being committed. Going back on that settled conviction, starting to, starting to weigh options, starting to look for a way out, you know, kind of playing the field, looking to see if you've got some other option, maybe hedging your bets. Patience is the safeguard that stops doubt from creeping in and starting you looking for a life hack to get patience and to get God's wisdom without going through the trials of the learning process. You're not going to get wisdom if every time a situation comes along, the first thing you do is look for a quick way out of it so you don't have to go through the hard thing. That won't build patience. That won't build wisdom. You'll just take the easy way out every time and you'll remain immature. You won't grow. Patience is the safeguard that stops doubt from creeping in and, and stops you looking for a life hack to get God's wisdom. Okay, but how do you do it, right? This is all well and good. You know, oh, good word, pastor, good word. Okay, but I don't feel any more patient than I did 15 minutes ago. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get there. But on the other hand, it's sort of like, well, you got to just pray for patience and trust the Lord, right? But can't, 
Like I said, it's not a, there's, no, there's no life hack for patience. If you were looking for some like magical thing that I dreamed up during the week, be like, no one's ever thought of this before. Why don't I just tell them that? I'm afraid I don't have any, any such miraculous one weird trick. We've seen that a big part of patience or endurance or steadfastness, whatever translation you have in front of you, it involves that settled decision to stick with it and hang in there for the sake of what God is doing in your life, even when it doesn't feel natural to do so. And we've seen that wisdom is one of the important byproducts of that hanging in there in difficult situations. If you go through them, you will come out the other side more patient and hopefully more wise because you've gained experience, you've learned from them. Maybe you've done well and you go, okay, that worked. I'll do that next time. Maybe you didn't do so well and you go, I will avoid making that same mistake in the future. Now that all sounds great, but how do we do it? Because it's easy to say, well, just, just make that settled decision and stick with it. Okay, but how, right? What, what about when the situation just seems hard or unjust and you go, but I don't want to stick with it. A good place to start is with our expectations. If we have unrealistic expectations going into anything, we're going to end up being disappointed. And there seems to just be something within all of us that expects everything to go smoothly and comfortably and without disturbance or hardship. And we, we still sometimes, we stubbornly cling to this expectation that Anything that's unpleasant is just a deviation from the proper norm. Now, I think at some very deep level, there's a certain amount of truth in this. Some part of us, I believe, is still remembering the, the perfection that God created that's now lost. And some part of us is still looking forward to his eternal kingdom when we won't be suffering under the effects of sin As the writer of Ecclesiastes said, God's placed eternity into our hearts and even even the fall and even our sinfulness doesn't completely do away with that. So I think at some level, the desire that things be better than they are is is a God-given thing. But if that becomes just our expectation for everyday life, it can also be a problem. We're seriously fooling ourselves if we think that life here and now is going to be anything other than a mixed bag. Of experiences, even for us as Christians. So that's a good starting place. Remember that hard things coming our way are not necessarily indications that we failed or that God is punishing us or that we're the exception and everyone else is doing fine, just not us. No one, Christian or not, gets out of this life without some pretty significant knocks. And as, as I look around the congregation I know there's plenty of faces looking back at me and as I see you there, I go, yeah, they've they've been through some pretty hard things in their lives, as have we all. That's the nature of living in a fallen world. So if we have that at least as an expectation, that can start to take the edge off the desire to be kind of jumping ship when things get hard. And I know it sounds really trite to say it, But that doesn't make it any less true that adversity is pretty good soil for growing the fruit of the Spirit and particularly the fruit of patience. Okay, but what do you actually do? I've mentioned once or twice in this series that that the fruit of the Spirit are sort of the flip side of the coin. On the other side is 
the spiritual disciplines that we talked about before Easter. So we've got spiritual disciplines, and then if we're faithful in those, those are means by which the Lord helps us to grow the fruit of the Spirit. As much as we might wish it were otherwise, if adversity is sort of the soil in which fruit like patience in particular can grow, the spiritual disciplines that we practice in our lives, that's like the pruning, the weeding, maybe the watering that helps the fruit to grow to maturity. So don't give up on practicing the spiritual disciplines. We can call it spiritual disciplines, but they're just very basic things, right? The spending time in the Lord's word, giving thanks for the things that you do have, meeting together for worship with other Christians, regular times of prayer. These things provide anchors and rhythms to your days and weeks and become settled habits that will help carry you through difficult times and even find growth in them. But here's what we so frequently do. I find a lot of us do this. I've done this in my own life. Sometimes we either wait until things get really hard and then we go, okay, now I'm going to double down. I'm going to do this now. I need to spend some time in prayer. Things are hard. Or things get hard and then maybe we pull away from some of those good habits and disciplines. You know, you know how it works, right? You've, you've let yourself kind of get into a pattern of coasting. Ah, it's okay if I don't read, spend my time in the scriptures today. I'll do it tomorrow. And then you miss a couple days, and pretty soon you're so far behind on your Bible reading plan, and you, okay, I don't know what, I'm just going to not bother with it now. And I'm just going to flip it open and read randomly whatever happens, and you don't even do that. And then something hard happens, though, and you're like, okay, i got to get back into the Word problem is when things are hard and challenging and frustrating, that's not always the best time to try to be forming new habits, and it's extra hard to do when things are challenging. Or the other thing is we may do is things are going okay. We are doing those things. We are faithful in practicing those sort of disciplined obedience to the things God would have us do, and then things get hard challenges come our way and we kind of we let it slip because I'm I'm busy I got a lot going on things are challenging and pretty soon you find that not only are things hard but you're not going to the source of growth and God's work in your life right and then we say well when I was doing it it didn't prevent the bad things from happening so I'll just let it slide at the end of the day the spiritual disciplines aren't for the purpose of impressing God nor are the fruits of the Spirit confirmation that we've done so. It's not about impressing God. It's about connecting with Him. I know that may not sound very trendy, might not make it onto the the life hack list of, you mean this is just about connecting with God? Yeah, there's really no shortcuts to that. It's building a relationship with our Heavenly Father. You can't cheat your way into that. There's no quick fix. You can't microwave it. That's, that's, that's why this list is called the fruit of the Spirit and not the microwave pizza of this. I mean, not that they had it back in the Apostle Paul's time, but, right, fruit, if you grow a tree right from a seed, you know, from an apple core or whatever, you plant that apple, it grows slowly. For the first few years, you've just got a little skinny tree, a little sapling, doesn't amount to anything, looks 
looks so insignificant. It takes years for that seed to grow into a sapling, into a mature tree, and then one year eventually you see a few blossoms on it. Maybe you get a few apples, and it's still a few more years before that tree is growing a good crop of fruit every year. Fruit takes time. Fruit takes time to grow. Here's the other thing I'll leave you with. And I, we've got a lot going on this morning. We're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. I find it a little bit ironic that I have to say, I'm going to try to move quickly to wrap up this sermon when it's on patience. But <laughs> try my best. We talked a moment ago about how this is all about connection. Now, as we walk the steps of this journey and eventually eternally with our God. And so let's remember that these aren't just called fruits of righteousness or fruits of virtue or fruits of good character. They're called the fruit of the Spirit because they come by maintaining that vital and essential connection with the Holy Spirit as he works in our life. Now in John chapters 14 to 16, it's kind of a nice companion Passage to this whole thing about growing fruit, right? It's in chapter 15 that we have the vine and the branches. Chapters 14 and 16 in particular, John uh, talks about Jesus' kind of last message with his disciples. Jesus talks a lot there about the Holy Spirit that's going to come, what his work's going to be, how he's going to help believers in following faithfully. And near the end of that section, in 16, 14, and 15, Jesus teaches that the Holy Spirit will take of what is his and will announce or declare it to his followers. And and we think naturally enough, and, and the idea there seems to be, you know, revelation of who he is and what that means for them the work that he's about to accomplish on the cross and so forth. But we'd, we'd not be wrong to think that the Holy Spirit is going to take of what is Jesus in terms of his righteousness and his character and apply it to believers as well. When we're justified before God because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross and because of his victorious resurrection, what is Christ's is applied to us by the Spirit, positionally, if you will. You may have heard that word used. But much of what's going to follow that in our Christian lives is going to consist of the Holy Spirit day by day taking what is Jesus and applying it to us in an, in an apparent way, in a visible way. And making it what characterizes us, not just positionally, but in practice as well. And we think of Jesus. We do certainly think of many examples of patience, right? You think of his patience with his, his foolish and slow-to-understand disciples who kind of do this three steps forward and two steps back thing. And, you know, there's that one time when he just has to tell Peter, okay, that's enough. You don't, you're totally missing the boat here, Peter. But overall, like, so patient with those disciples, even though they they just seem to miss the boat again and again. Think of his patience with the crowds, who so frequently just seem to follow Jesus around, 
I mean, sometimes it seems their, their attraction to Jesus is genuine, and at other times it just seems, well, they want to see some more miracles. They like that bread thing, you know, Jesus, if you wouldn't mind giving us some more bread, that'd be really cool. Uh, and we'd like some more healing too, that'd be nice. And Jesus is so patient, right? He goes and tries to get away on one occasion from the crowds. Come away, he says to the disciples. Big, big uh, opportunity for ministry that they've just been in. Come away and rest. And the crowds follow him. And Jesus, you know, he still has compassion on them. He still helps them. And we might also think, in Jesus' case, all those years before his public ministry— Years and years just kind of toiling away in obscurity as a builder. We don't know exactly what Jesus did, if he built houses or built wagons or exactly what he did, but he did manual labor for many years before entering into his public ministry. And I mean, maybe I think we've mentioned it at some point in this sermon series, that passage uh, from the Old Testament describing Jesus about the the bruised reed he won't break and he won't quench even just a smoking wick. Just always having patience, even when, even, when we, even when we fail him, right? Supremely, I think we, we get down on the disciples, right? But we can look at our own lives and see all the times Jesus had to be awfully patient with us when we went from seeming to do so well and had clarity about what he wanted us to do and we were following and yeah, then we took a bit of a left turn and had to get back on track and we did it again and Jesus just being supremely, supremely patient with us. And we have the promise that the Holy Spirit, as we allow him to work in our lives, will take of what is Jesus's and declare it to us and apply it to us. Jesus has stuck by us all, and and I think many of us who have been walking with him on that road following that course of the obedience in the same direction, we'll see that little by little we have grown more like him. And there's no shortcut to this process. There's no life hacks. There's no one weird trick that's going to teach you patience or wisdom. There's only that set decision to keep walking with him. And you see the, the, the good times and when it's more easy as gifts from God and the hard times as opportunities for growth and character and wisdom beyond which lies our eternal home with him. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your promise to be with us in difficult times, not just to get through them, but that as we are faithful in allowing you to work, you actually use those times to develop our character. We think particularly today of patience, But we know that um, adversity, trials, hardships, difficult times are the soil that it seems the fruit of your spirit grows best in. We pray we'd be faithful in uh, practicing obedience to the things you've given us to do. Those means spending time in your word, praying, giving thanks for what we have, meeting together for worship, all of those things, Lord. Keep us faithful in the things that will keep us walking with you, we pray. And we trust you. We trust your spirit to grow this fruit in our lives. We pray that we would keep that connection, and by that connection, that we would remain in touch with you, that we would see this as your, your relationship to us and with us. 
as we walk and as we continue this road, obedience in the same direction. We pray that it would be long. We pray that it would be our lives long. Will you keep us faithful? Will you keep us patiently one step in front of the other, uh, committed to what you're doing in our lives, we pray. Through Jesus, our Lord.